Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Marissa Charles and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Marissa Charles. Well, thank you so much and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Marissa Charles, our co-host, is here, and we are delighted to have a chance to talk with each and every one of you about a topic of the day, and we're going to talk in a moment about mental health awareness and how that may impact not only folks who are eligible for Medicare 65 of age and over, but others across our community. Dr. Charles is at the Ingram Clinic uh, over on Loop 410, and uh, as you think about uh, the state of the world today, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, for those who uh, can remember, as I can remember, uh, the fear over polio when I was growing up, mm -hmm. uh, how that was, uh, uh, especially for parents, an everyday seasonal occurrence, and then other infectious diseases. I'm not old enough to remember the Spanish influenza from 1918. I don't go back that far. Uh, but what we're facing now uh, with the uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, has so many people on edge and yet others who, unlike that river in Egypt, are in total denial. <laughs> yes. No, you're right, Ron. Um, mental health has been, I, I think a lot of people that naturally, that have in the past suffered with, say, depression or anxiety are at this point in time because of the isolation that's come from the coronavirus pandemic recommendations. Um, we're seeing a lot of manifestations of their symptoms, a lot of worsening of their symptoms. Um, and especially when they're having to live in close quarters and not be exposed to, you know, being able to go out into the community and, and be around their, you know, uh, friends and other social um, activities, I think that we're seeing a lot of worsening. No, it is amazing. We do another show uh, aimed at caregivers called Caregiver SOS on Air, and one of our occasional guests is a nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions, Dr. Jamie Heisman. Uh, and over the years, as we've had him on the show, his rule of thumb is don't isolate. The worst thing caregivers can do is isolate. And now we're telling them isolate. Well, it's a very special situation right now. And we know that with this coronavirus pandemic, isolation is the key to getting um, to having less cases to protecting our loved ones. Are you seeing any cases diagnosed in your clinic? We've seen some, you know, um, come through the clinic, definitely. Um, you know, there are still cases rising in San Antonio in general. Right. They're still coming back, yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say we've had a large number, but we certainly have had some. And let us welcome to our uh, WellMed Radio Hotline, Dr. Benjamin Stevens. He's with WellMed at New Braunfels, and it's a delight, Dr. Stevens, to have you on the show. Thanks so much for giving us the time. Pleasure to be here. When you think about uh, the mental health awareness uh, in our society, I was mentioning to Marissa off the air that one of the stats that just absolutely drives me crazy is the number of men 65 and over today who become alcoholics, today who contemplate and, and uh, commit suicide, kill themselves, and for other seniors as well, uh, many of whom uh, were living paycheck to paycheck, Social Security check to Social Security check, who now are worrying about how they're going to make it. What does that do for our mental health? Well, it only adds fuel to the fire. I mean, those chronic stressors are always there, and over the course of time, some people develop better coping management strategies than others, but 
when you pile on something as something like infectious disease where you have really very little you can actively do to, to mitigate things. It seems like you're out of control and you're just a bystander waiting for the next shoe to fall. It can certainly make matters that much worse. It's the uh, prayer of the alcoholics say, you know, worry about the things you can control and not those you can't when it comes to the uh, coronavirus. Uh, we have no control other than taking certain safety measures like how many times a day do you wash your hands? Oh, oh me? Yeah. yeah. I'll oh, bet a lot. You used well, to you do it anyhow. Yeah, at least half a dozen, and I'm not even seeing patients on a regular basis except on a computer screen nowadays. So it's something that we thought we were good about before, but we've redoubled our efforts and then some. Dr. Charles? No, yes, at least, you know, half a dozen times easily. Um, you are You wash your hands on the way in to see a patient, and as soon as you leave, get out. And and it's true for me as well that I'm seeing a, a good majority of my patients on computer screens, but we still have some that we're bringing into the clinic that we're seeing. But even if you're not seeing the patient, you know, face-to-face, we're still, you know, washing our hands and making sure because we're interacting with other people in the clinic as well. Now, so, how have patients uh, adjusted to seeing you uh, on a screen, Dr. Charles? Uh, Dr. Stevens, I'm sorry, I'm going to go to you and then Dr. Charles. Uh, how, how has that affected their interaction with you? Uh, to be brutally honest, it's been actually a lot smoother sort of uh, temporary transition than I might have expected it to be. We had gone through several incarnations trying to do sort of an online version, which was rather successful for a lot of people, but many people had challenges with. And so now we're using different formats, some involving people actually coming to the office and staying in their cars and using what amounts to a glorified iPad to see us. Others were using different different telephone uh, sort of uh uh, applications to be able to actually physically see our patients. And I think they've, number one, been very understanding and accepting. Uh, and I think they recognize its limitations. So as uh, we were saying, we're seeing selected patients to the office when, when that's the most appropriate thing. But on balance, it's been smoother than I might have imagined. I, I love the picture of an HEB curbside service at Whataburger curbside service at WellMed at New Braunfels. Curbside service. That's exactly what we call it. <laughs> That's right. That is exactly what we call it. And, and I have to agree. You know, a lot of our patients have actually responded very well. They're happy to see us. They know that we're right inside the building and can come out at moment's notice if there is something that needs to be further evaluated. Um, I check with them and check with them, do you need anything else? You know, and in the majority of cases, we're able to address um, the majority of their problems um, through the uh, virtual um, encounter. You have a vision in my eyes of one of your staff peering outside a window in the clinic, moving the blinds a little bit. I don't see anybody out there yet. I'll let you know, doctor. <laughs> well, you know what? When we first started with this, um, you know, with the changes that we had to make due to the coronavirus pandemic, it, things shifted so much. You know, the waiting room itself is such a a risk for infection, you know, with patients interacting and sitting next to each other that we basically stopped using the the waiting room and we switched most of our encounters to either in the parking lot or through the grand pad or from home. Um, now the grand pad is the iPad like device. It is like an iPad. You know, it's just, it doesn't have quite as many, it's, it's geared towards se- uh, seniors. So it only has the ability to do the, the FaceTime calls. It's a one little green button that they have to press to answer the call. So they don't have to worry about messing it up or breaking it. You know, all you do is press one button and you're talking to them directly. And so having them right outside. And so when we first started with the coronavirus, 
a lot of us were sitting in our waiting rooms, looking out the window, waiting for the patients to come up, plus doing phone calls and interacting with patients um, through video. Um, of course, now things are changing and we're scheduling a lot more patients and bringing them in for their routine evaluations. But initially, that was part of the response. And you were garbed in your PPE garb? Oh, goodness. And that's what I tell them when I talk to them um, through the little grandpad. I say, okay, this is so that we can actually see each other's faces and understand each other more clearly because so many are hard of hearing. And so many, when you put a mask and a shield on, that communication is really difficult. So we get out there, you know, I tell them, I'm going to talk to you as much as I can. If there's something that I need to do, I will come out, but I will be in my complete garb. So, uh, uh, you know, a, a gown, gloves, a mask, shield, eye protection, the whole bit. And Dr. Stevens, when you went to med school, my guess is you didn't spend a lot of time worried about pandemics. No, again, in medical school, it was just one of those things you sort of learned about the the historicity of it, but it was something that we had sort of largely assumed would be behind us. In my particular case, I had a had an army scholarship to, to medical school, and so when I was in Germany, I actually attended a course, uh, Biological and Chemical Casualty, where they went into a great deal more detail about, you know, what a scenario like this might potentially involve in either military or civilian setting. And it was very interesting and academic, but even at that time, it was one of these things where you really couldn't imagine you'd ever actually have to contend with such a thing. And so when it got here and was as disruptive as it was, it was a real shock to the system. And our response has definitely been a work in progress. But it's been, again, an impressive response and, and one that I think that, uh, on balance, we've done really quite well with across the board, patients included. Occasionally in, in warfare, gas has been used. World War I, gas was used certainly in uh, Syria and in other places. Uh, it is so deadly, so dangerous, and so frightening. I can't imagine when you were in uh, school over there studying uh, what the impact was. What, what do those gases do to our bodies, and how quickly? I mean, it, it, uh, it depends. I mean, if you go back to World War II with chlorine gas, you know, it was largely a respiratory agent meant to quite literally burn the lungs. And actually, truth be told, um, gas is most effective when it doesn't kill. It just cripples because a crippled soldier is far more of an encumbrance to the, um, you know, to the, the other side that you're fighting than would be a dead soldier. And they got to so feed them, care for them. Yeah. It was even, it was even worse than that. But, uh, we worried about, you know, infectious diseases, you know, viral, somebody bringing back smallpox or certainly anthrax or Ooh. a whole host of other things, including, you know, cyanide gas. And so, it was, again, sort of an academic exercise, you know, war gaming, how you would respond in a battlefield or civilian setting. But I don't think anyone really do exactly if or when it would ever come. And if it did, what form it would take and what it would actually take to, to really respond. And so I think even the most critical thinkers out there have been caught off guard by this thing. Well, and some who write fiction. Real education. Those who write fiction really were ahead of this curve, if you look at uh, some of the books uh, dealing with uh, these kind of spreads of mass illness, pandemics, or whatever you want to label it, and how quickly. I think that's what's uh, most amazing, at least to me and to others. Over 100,000 people still climbing in the U.S. dead in less than, what, three months? Mm -hmm. How is that possible? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I've sort of joked with a lot of people that, truth be told, if I had the chance, I'd like to jump ahead a couple of years just to sort of 
read the textbooks, as it were, and see where the final consensus lies. Because at this point, while we know an awful lot more about it, you know, than we did even a few months ago, it's still a very open question as to just exactly how, you know, the, the, the thing is behaving, the actual disease burden out there. You know, they had some initial antibody studies that suggested that in places like New York City and Chicago, maybe upwards of 20, 21% of people may have already mounted antibodies to it, meaning they've been exposed. I think some of that's been, been reined in a little bit because, again, there's just an awful lot of unknowns out there. Yeah, the unknowns are unknown. I think that was a former Secretary of Defense who said that. Yeah, that's uh, Ruben, uh, Donald Ruben. <laughs> it was, yeah. The, the known known and the unknown known. Exactly. We're going to come back to you in a known moment. You stick with us talking on our Wilmot Radio Hotline with Dr. Benjamin Stevens. Wilmot at New Braunfels, he's a known known. And Dr. Marissa Charles, Wilmot at Ingram Park, and our co-host on Wilmot Radio, she's a known known. You're listening to Wilmot Radio on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its emotional support helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number, and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866-342-6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. Well, thank you so much for joining us on WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles, is with us in our Wilmot Radio studios here at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and we're talking on our Wilmot Radio hotline with Dr. Benjamin Stevens, Wilmot at Nebronfels. And uh, Dr. Stevens, uh, maybe you can end up with a mental health diagnosis of me. We're talking about mental health awareness and challenges during this time of great upset. And I want to tell you about a, a, a dream I had last night, and I know you probably during your residency or uh, internship did at least a few weeks in psychiatry, so you and Dr. Charles can be really helpful. Here's my dream. I'm on an airplane. It is huge, row after row after row after row of of people, mostly women, some men in their 30s, I would guess, uh, and, and they're all sitting there not saying a word. And each of them has in their hand a packet. And I'm curious, and I walk down and I open one of those packets, and it is a vaccine for some rare disease. And every one of them is holding a different vaccine and a different chemical treatment from, you know, nerve gas, sarin, although there's no perfect treatment for that, as I understand it. But for anything you can think of, a chickenpox, smallpox. And, and unfortunately, I woke up because I want to know how that dream ends. And it's obviously related uh, to what's in the news today. Uh, and, and I wonder, are we sending teams of people out there to try to vaccinate when the vaccine comes? That fits into that scenario. Well, I know that there definitely will be, once we have an established vaccine that is uh, found to be safe and effective, 
there will be a push to vaccinate and that'll come through our clinics, I'm sure. Just like we vaccinate for the influenza vaccine. I remember um, when the swine flu was, you know, uh, had come out and they came out with a addendum, a new vaccine to add to the existing Because there was vaccine. a problem with the first vaccine. Well, there was a, a mutation that occurred. You know, I don't know if you remember swine yes. flu. It was, I, I remember in Mexico, there were so many people that passed away from that one in particular, but they were able to engineer the vaccine relatively quickly because it was very closely related and it was an influenza. Right. But we had to give boosters. And so those were pushed out to the clinics as soon as they were available and we were able to get the patients vaccinated. And we did not see a pandemic of this kind of proportions to that. It, the problem is that we do not have any kind of vaccine for the coronavirus at this time. And of course, there will be people that won't want to take it. But I think the vast majority of people who have seen the types of effects that this particular virus can have on families. Um, yeah, like death. Like death, death yes. yes. But even the ones that survive, you know, we're still learning and studying about how this will affect them in the future. What kind of uh, lung disease we're going to see that's going to be post-COVID, especially people that have been on ventilators for extended periods of time. So even the survivors may have long-term effects. Yeah, I want to come back to something that uh, uh, Dr. Stevens mentioned early on uh, when you were taking a look at uh, using gas uh, in warfare. And the most effective weapons are those that don't kill but maim and wound because of the burden it puts on uh, that country to care for them. Uh, you can't, easier to evacuate, pardon me saying it, but easier to take dead people off a battlefield than those who are still alive and you're trying to keep them alive. And when you think about that, uh, Dr. Stevens, and Marissa's right, uh, if you look at some of those who have uh, dealt with the virus, seem to have overcome it, some are having side effects now. It's like recurrent polio that some people are experiencing their you know, 60s and 70s. Yeah. And that's the, that's the funny thing about, you know, virology and physiology is that, you know, these, these viruses, they don't act monolithically. You know, again, we don't know how many, but upwards of, you know, 20 to uh, some people will say 80% of people who encounter the virus may conceivably never know it. Others will have mild symptoms that could easily be mistaken for everything from a common cold allergies. And so, you know, we know now that, you know, uh, very rare, but children experience certain manifestations of it that are largely inflammatory in nature. We know that many people who die of this die from, you know, complications actually more related to inflammation of the heart muscle. And so we know that some of the people who are dying are not so much dying specifically of the virus's effects itself, but the way the body reacts to it. And so it's going to be, you know, again, a huge learning curve going forward to know what it is exactly that we're treating and how best to do it. But we also know when it comes to vaccines, certain viruses have learned themselves over time very easily to it and have made very effective vaccines and others still elude us, HIV being a good example. Mm -hmm. We know that some viruses, like the one that causes uh, shingles, had a vaccine that was pretty effective and we were pretty pleased with. And then over the course of time, a better vaccine was developed that's even more, you know, useful and effective. And yeah, so, I've had both you know, vaccines. It, and hopefully COVID will fall into that camp where quite rapidly, you know, science, I always joke that doctors are really just sort of extension agents, you know, of the, of the scientific community mm-hmm. will give us a vaccine that is largely effective and something that can significantly reduce the disease burden that we associate with it and so that we can get society at large back to something akin to the pre-COVID norm, although it's very likely the case that we'll never go back to, quote-unquote, the way things were. Yeah, I have a good friend who uh, is a pain doc, and and she says that uh, uh, there is no 
old normal anymore. The new normal will be the new normal, whatever that is. I have no idea what that will develop into. And I want to ask you, because we were talking also about mental health, as you describe what could be the fear that folks have of contracting this virus, of not only dying, but perhaps suffering enormous physical and, and mental disabilities over a period of time. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that as an individual? Is there a little box you can lock that up in your head and say, hey, I'm moving on without it? I think some people can. I think that, again, the most important thing is just to sort of be aware and acknowledge those concerns. And hopefully, if you're lucky, have an outlet that you can talk about them you know, with people who either, you know, share your concerns or you can at least commiserate or to people who can alleviate some of them and to give you tools to cope with the ones that can't be overly, you know, how shall we say, ameliorated just by, again, talking it out. So talk to a mental health professional. Or, I mean, family sometimes, clergy sometimes. Oftentimes they can be helpful, but when those symptoms are particularly severe and intrusive and are really starting to impede your ability to enjoy your daily life, then they become the sort of thing that are oftentimes best, you know, brought to the attention of your hopefully primary care provider who can talk with you in more detail about what might be going on with them and what the best treatment office might be. But generally, yes, again, the proverbial Dr. Phil's of the world who can sometimes talk you through a whole host of things and a lot of other things that can underlie those concerns can be every bit as effective. What do you do with your patients, Marissa? Well, you know, I, I was going to say, of course, having the conversation first and foremost and bringing it up to the physician and, and primary care provider is, you know, of uh, utmost importance. Um, moreover, you know, sometimes medications are indicated, but there are other things that we can do, um, you know, to try to reduce the stress level and the anxiety levels. Um, for example, deep breathing exercises, meditation exercises, um, going for walks, you know, of course, with safe PPE in place, wear your masks, of course, but, um, you know, making sure that you do have an outlet, you know, for some people that's singing or painting or, um, you know, or needlepoint or whatever it is that you find gives you some, um, peace and some relief, um, from the constant mental chatter. Um, social media can sometimes be, um, difficult because you get that constant exposure to the stressor. Um, and so sometimes, you know, reducing exposure to um, negative input from, for example, social media. We, I think we'd even talked about it on another um, episode about, you know, constantly watching the news and how that can actually cause more stress. And so, you know, maybe having a set amount of time that you dedicate every day to keep up with current events, but not having the constant chatter. I've cut back on how much news I watch, and now I feel guilty for not watching much news. <laughs> well, Seriously. there's a balance. There's a balance there. Because there is a, a certain degree of anxiety that, you know, comes on just from having that constant, those headlines, those, you know, they're trying to grab your attention, but they're very uh, catastrophizing. You know what we need, and uh, not that we'll make any money at it, but what we need to come up with, uh, Dr. Stevens, is a, a new phrase for breaking news. Because <laughs> everything now is breaking news. And when everything's breaking news, then nothing There is, is. no breaking news. Right. So, oh, yes what's the next level up? I don't know. Well, we may not, you know, be able to come up with something like that today, but... Well, I'm with uh, uh, Dr. Stevens about wanting to be here in 10, 15 years to read about what really happened uh, with this coronavirus when it first 
got off an airplane at uh, uh, JFK or wherever it landed uh, and infected people across this country uh, quietly mm-hmm. and rapidly. And rapidly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 50, 70 years ago, all we would be thinking is that we were having a really vicious flu season. You know, we might not even really be aware that there was a, another player out there potentially. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, the the technology has come, you know, to the point where we do have the ability to identify these viruses and get more information about them, but uh, the treatment still eludes us. Well, the other thing, and, and maybe the two of you can answer the question for me, all of the uh, artistic uh, drawings of this virus is very pretty. All those colors and all those, you know, various little hats and curves and what have you. Is that an actual representation of what it looks like? Um, they're able to get those images with, you know, very advanced electron micros- microscopy. Um, and so they are able to get, you know, uh, some depiction or images of what the virus actually looks like. Well, no wonder all these cells fall for it. Say, ooh, he's cute. Come on in. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and look what happens, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, we are flat out of time. And, and Dr. Stevens, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a delight. And we'll come out and see you out there in, in the Brownfields one of these days. We'll be looking forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dr. Stevens. Thank you very much. Dr. Benjamin Stevens, Wilmot, Edna Braunfels. He earned his medical degree from Oklahoma State University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For Marissa Charles, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you again soon on Wilmot Radio. Remember, podcasts of all of our shows are available. Just Google podcast Wilmot Radio. Talk with you soon on 930 AM, The Answer. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.